1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim.
0: Ron Friedman, how to make work more fun, interesting, and productive.
2: When you look at what it is that leads people to have an engaging workplace experience, it's not what we typically think. It's not a high salary. It's not the perks that you see at all of these fancy uh, high-tech places. It's really about having your psychological needs fulfilled on a daily basis. Would Google be as innovative as it is if all their employees were waiting for Sergey Brin to, to determine what it is they were going to work on next?
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it?
3: So Richard, have you ever had a job where you just really didn't want to be there?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the worst kind of feeling to get up and go, oh, i got to go to work in the morning.
3: And incredibly common, there was a Gallup poll not long ago that said that fewer than a third of people feel fully engaged in their jobs.
0: Yeah, that's, that's an alarming statistic. And millions of employees are either bored or just completely fed up. So right. this is a huge problem.
3: Yeah, and not just in terms of worker productivity, but in terms of people's own quality of life. So our, our guest today has spent a lot of his career on these kinds of questions. Ron Friedman, he's a workplace psychologist, and his new book is The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an
0: Extraordinary Workplace. Jim, we're re-airing this show. We actually recorded it last year with Ron, but these issues are very much present today. And it's
3: such an interesting conversation, and because it was right after we launched the podcast, we really felt like it deserved more visibility.
0: Now, how do we fix it is all about solutions. So let's look first at what's wrong. Ron, this is a huge problem. How bad is it
2: out there? I mean, how... Dysfunctional are some workplaces worldwide. Over eighty percent of employees are disengaged, and that means they're not working at their best. They don't get a sense of satisfaction, and that leads them to produce at a lower level. So the the numbers are really staggering. I mean, I think Gallup estimates something like five hundred and fifty million dollars, a billion dollars, are lost every year um, to disengagement. And that's in this country. That's right. Well, what I find really interesting is that it's not just in the interest of employees for organizations to do a better job of engaging them, but it's actually in the interest of the business because when employees are engaged, they tend to be more creative, they work harder, and they stay with their company for a longer period of time. So really, it's an argument that we all need to look at in a more careful way because it it benefits both companies and employees alike.
3: Yeah, I've spent most of my career in the magazine business, which is kind of an archetype of the sort of highly engaged, creative business. But I've seen magazines where the staff is really on board and in, in working towards a common goal. And I've seen ones where people are alienated or fed up, and you can actually see it in the product, but it's just not as good.
2: That's right. And we live in a world now where everyone's job is to be creative or solve problems or to collaborate on some level. And so the psychological perspective is one that every organization now needs to consider. It's no longer a matter of how hard people are working or how many hours they're sitting behind their desk, but rather how they feel and how they're thinking.
0: Yeah, I come to this after a lifetime in radio, and boy, I've heard some war stories. And it's also supposed to be a creative medium, but the employees are kind of shut out from the creative decision-making. They're not
2: asked about sound. They're not asked about what they're doing on the radio. Well, there's a long legacy within business consulting of managers doing the decision making and employees essentially just doing the work. And when you invite people to share in the decision-making process, they become more invested and therefore do a better job. You're pretty fired up about this. What, what is the human cost Of this problem. Incalculable. I can tell you from from having spent years as a psychologist who taught and studied human motivation in the lab, having gone off into the corporate world where I came to realize that there's a massive divide between things that I just took for granted as a psychologist about how we can get people to be more creative and more productive and more engaged and what most organizations are doing.
3: So was there like an aha moment where you said, wow, so many managers think they're getting it and they're not and I can help them?
2: You know, I, I don't even think it's the case that they think they're getting it. I think that managers are interested in better ways of motivating and better ways of creating organizations that are more fully functional. The trouble is that they don't have the time to pour over the data. You know, years ago, we had this revolutionary book called Moneyball mm-hmm. that introduced this new idea about how we can predict whether a player is going to contribute to their to their club. Yeah, this is a Michael Lewis book about baseball. It was the Oakland A's. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and and so before Moneyball – scouts used to think we just need home run hitters. But as it turns out, when you look at the data, what you really want are players who get on base more often, Mm -hmm. the ones who are taking walks and hitting singles. And by having that data, they're now better able to draft players for their team. And now you see just about every sport have an analytics person on their staff. I think we're going to get to that place in workplaces. When you look at what it is that actually leads people to have an engaging workplace experience, it's not what we typically think. It's not a high salary. It's not the perks that you see at all of these fancy uh, high-tech places. It's really about having your basic human psychological needs fulfilled on a daily basis. So you don't have to be a mini Google. And- no,
3: you don't need the free sushi. Well, you know, well, one thing that I, as a, as a longtime boss, that took me a long time to learn was, yes, you have to motivate people, but not everybody's motivated by what you're motivated by. I tend to gravitate towards people with Big goals and, and big personalities, very creative you know editor, writer, designer types and it took me a long time to learn that not everybody had to be that hard driving person, you also need the quiet, introverted person you don 't want a an extroverted copy editor. <laughs> You know, you want a copy editor who's really happy, working hard and focused in a quiet, meticulous way. And that is what he or she finds rewarding. Whereas somebody else, you know, a salesperson is probably the opposite of that. And it took me a while to get that. And I I bet you for most managers, they probably feel they can manage people like themselves, Mm -hmm. but maybe not so quick to know that you don't want everybody to be like yourself. The whole thing about diversity, I think, really does matter on a team.
2: Yes. And I think that it's particularly necessary when you're looking for a creative product, you see a lot of organizations actually saying we're going to hire for cultural fit. Mm-hmm. And what that means is we're going to look for a certain type of personality and we're going to try to replicate it. And that makes good sense if the work is simple. But if you're looking for a creative product, you actually don't want too much similarity because that if you have everyone being exposed to the same ideas again and again, that gets people complacent and mm-hmm. doesn't get them thinking outside of the box.
3: I, I tend to be somebody who likes agreement and likes to go for consensus. And it took me a while to realize the most valuable person on my staff was the kind of cranky misanthrope who wasn't afraid to disagree with me and pour some cold water on a story idea, say, that I thought was really great. And then realized mm, maybe not so great and saved us a lot of unproductive work right. by actually bringing a little negativity into the conversation.
2: That's an interesting uh, story. You know, there, there is a study that I talk about in the book that looks at what happens when you have people who are all very similar to one another on a team versus when you have a team that is the majority of people who, who, whom are similar, but then you have someone who's an outsider. The teams with a mix of people who are familiar with one another and an outsider tend to perform better. And it's not because the outsider is getting people to think differently, but rather because in having to explain their ideas to the outsider, that gets people reexamining their own assumptions. Wow, that makes total sense. I,
0: I want to hear more solutions so let's get into some
3: of those solutions. Let's let's start with the employers. I know you have some very concrete ideas about what
2: employers could do. So we talked about how psychological needs are at the heart of what gets people to be engaged at their work. And so what are those needs? And the three needs that people have is, one, feeling like you're competent at your job and having the ability to grow your competence on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Two is feeling like you're connecting with others in a meaningful way. And then three is autonomy, feeling like you have choice in the way you go about doing Doing your work. So as an employer, what you need to think about is how can I get my employees feeling more uh, competent, more connected to one another, and more autonomous? So let's take competence first. Mm -hmm. How do you grow people's competence on the job? And so the key thing to remember is that as employees, when we view our organizations as a vehicle for growth, we have that sense of attachment. And so that's beneficial for us and for our company. So three easy things that any organizations could do. One is um, give people a reading budget give your employees a quarterly or even a monthly reading budget where they're allowed to go out and buy a book that's relevant to their industry in some way. And that can lead them to start thinking about new ideas, start reintroducing some new new uh, processes into their work. You can establish an office library. And then if that feels too expensive to you, another thing you can do is encourage your employees to take time out during the day to scan industry blogs. Take 15 or to 20 minutes, check out industry blogs. and Again, that gets you thinking of new ideas. And so what are you doing with this? you Trying to expand an employee's skill set? That's right. You're you're inviting employees to find new ways of recreating their job because in the past, you you took a job and your manager kind of told you what to do and then you left at 5 o'clock and that was it. Today, if you're looking to get the most out of employees, you want to invite them to recreate their job by – presenting new ideas about ways that things can be done better. That's a method of getting them more engaged and ultimately a method of getting better ideas seeping in on a regular basis.
3: And one of the things I've seen, I think we've all seen in our lifetimes, is the influence of digital technology on every business is to lower barriers to change and lower barriers to competition, right? Your tools are changing day to day. Your competitors are changing day to day. So the need to have people innovate and change their own jobs is much greater today
2: than it was when a lot of managers started their careers. You know, Google does this with 20% time. We've all kind of, Mm -hmm. I think, have heard of this is the idea that you're going to give employees one day a week where they can decide what it is they're going to be working on. And the way Google does this is really interesting where people aren't just sitting at their computer by themselves for that one day, but rather they're recruiting their colleagues to spend their 20% time um, together. And so they're building new projects the entire time they're there. So Gmail came out of this. Uh, Various products that Mm -hmm. have made Google billions of dollars have come out of 20% time. And so you can imagine, would Google be as innovative as it is if all their employees were waiting for Sergey Brin to to determine what it is they were going to work on next?
0: I want to push back a little bit, though, because not everybody works
2: for a tech company. What do you say to small businesses? I agree with you completely that not every company is going to come up with new products every month, like Google. That said, the idea of growing people's sense of competence isn't just for the sake of developing a new product. It's for the sake of getting people more engaged, feeling like they're good at their job. And when they feel good at their job, when they feel like they're growing, they're going to do better work for you regardless of the size
1: of your –
2: Business.
3: Now, one of your other points, I know, is you really think it's important to develop this connection between the colleagues on a on a job, and this is something else. Now, how can employers help with that?
2: There's a, there are a number of ways that any organization can build better connections between their employees. For one, when employees join an organization, what typically happens is people are introduced by their resume. Mm-hmm rather than just presenting employees by their professional experience, why not take a little bit of time to talk about what that employee's interests are outside of work? So for example, here's Jim. He really likes uh, the the, the New York Jets. And he, uh, on the weekends, he he likes to go to ballet, uh, whatever it is that you happen, your interests happen to be. Now, what what that does is now you and I have something to relate to um, that goes outside of work matters. And in fact, if you look at the research on the people who are getting along best at work, they're, the ones who are spending the most time talking about non-work matters. Wow. And so that might seem like, well, maybe they're just gossiping or talking about you know things that aren't benefiting the business. But as it turns out, the better they're connecting, the more engaged they are.
0: Our show is called How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. Does this apply in terms of getting people to work together? Because I think that one of the things I've noticed in dysfunctional workplaces is that there's this sense of us
2: versus them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Anytime you have a them in an mm-hmm. organization, that's a sign of dysfunction. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you say rooting against the boss. And I think that that speaks to the management style, of the person in charge. If that person is perceived as someone who is coaching others and helping them get further ahead in their career, I think that the views will change.
3: You know, that's funny. The, 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 I, I've always taken it as a, a real warning sign, the phrase, this place. If there's a workplace where people are saying like, oh, this place, all of a sudden they're, they're bonding together in opposition to the goals of their organization. They, there's something about the way it's running where they feel like their good ideas aren't being listened to, and they're almost rooting for failure. Are, are, are as you say, rooting against the boss. And I think that maybe some of these relationships you're talking about, that's an example of those relationships taking an unhealthy turn. Somehow the manager's got to get involved in those relationships, not necessarily by being too buddy-buddy with the employees, but at least building some common cause behind the, behind the mission.
2: Right. And I think another way of doing this is by providing seed money for after work activities where people rather than saying, okay, it's four o'clock on Tuesday, we're all going to get together and do yoga in the conference room, where you know, if you maybe you don't like getting sweaty in front of your coworkers, maybe you're not really interested in yoga. But rather than doing that, why not invite employees to say, hey, what are you guys interested in doing after work? And then you might have some people saying, I'm interested in bowling, or I'm interested in taking a cooking class. And if you have four or five people who are interested in something, provide the seed money for that activity. And in giving people that opportunity to collaborate over a shared goal together, even if it's not relevant to work, that bonding experience can then influence the way people work together. But you also talk about and make
0: a strong case for making work more autonomous. How do these two things not contradict with each other?
2: Well, autonomy isn't necessarily we're going to do things my way. It's about having a sense of choice. So if I'm a manager, what I might say is, uh, Jim, I'm, I need you to w- w- create a podcast for our work uh, – for for our organization. It's going to help us with our, our social media. And um, – Rather than saying, Jim, I need you to just do this and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to model it after freakonomics or whatever you're going to do. Uh, instead, I'm going to say, what's the best? W- here, first of all, let me, let me present a rationale for why this is critical. So now I'm bringing you into my thinking process rather than simply assuming that you have the same ideas about what's going to be successful for our company as I do. Because a lot of times employees don't have that same background or context. So really taking time out to provide the rationale first and then inviting the employee, so in this case, Jim, what sort of solutions do you see for producing this podcast and how might it look now jim's invited to contribute his his ideas and then his approach and we may not go with that approach but we'll have that dialogue and that's a way ultimately for jim to feel more invested in the project because now he understands why we're doing it and he's had some say in how it's going to unfold
0: we'll have to try that sometime jim actually yeah, I'm giving you a on. say <laughs> <laughs>
3: So let's let's switch gears now. Um, we've talked a lot about managers and what they can do. So what's your advice to the the somewhat disenchanted or the worker who wants to really make the most out of their job experience.
2: So we talked about how growing your competence is really critical to this. And so as an employee, you really want to reframe the way you look at your job rather than simply as something that your manager tells you to do. Look for ways to recreate your job in a way that allows you to do more of the things you enjoy doing more often. So for example, if you do a variety of tasks, but there's one or two that you really, really like, try to think about proactively about some ways that you can do more of that and come up with a plan that you can present to your manager that would allow you to spend more time doing it while still getting the work done for the department as a whole. So it's really critical when you present your case, don't just focus on why you want to do this for yourself. Think about how it's going to benefit your organization and then make that case to your manager.
3: So as a, as a longtime employer, I've had this situation many, many times where people came into me. And as you say, there's two different ways to do it. Uh, Liz Smith, the, the old gossip columnist, used, used to have a saying, she would never drop a dead cat on your boss's desk. You know. <laughs> Never just never just come into the office and say, I've got this problem, I don't like this part of my job. Instead, our organization has certain goals, here's how I can better focus on them by spending more time doing what I'm best at and here's my plan, and minimizing that part of the discussion where you basically admit that there's certain things you don't want to do and you're trying to get out of them, because then you you become a problem that your boss has to manage. Instead of becoming a solution, for, to help your boss solve her or his
2: problem. The flip side, by the way, of, of looking at just um, increasing the things that you like doing is recognize that at greater variety – of activities actually produces greater satisfaction at work. So we tend to view the things that we like to do and not really want to go out of our comfort zone. But it's actually when we're out of our comfort zone and growing and learning new things, expanding our skill set that we are more engaged in the work that we do.
0: Speaking of being out of our comfort zone, number two in your suggestions of what employees can do, uh, number one being to prioritize variety and growth, is reframing exercise, exercising,
2: to what, help stimulate the brain cells? Well, you know, the the point here is you really want to reframe exercise as part of your job. It's not just something that you do to look good or to feel good, but actually something that makes you smarter at work. Exercise... Gets more blood flowing to the brain, and therefore gives us greater focus in doing our work. It puts us in a better mood, which is critical when we're collaborating with others. And the other thing about exercise is it makes us more creative, and it gets uh, it activates the memory regions of our brain, which allows us to soak in information at a higher rate. So you're going to be more productive at work as a function of of exercising. And there's, in fact, research that organizations that allow or invite their employees to exercise either by taking an extended lunch hour or coming in late or leaving early, tend to have more engaged employees and employees who feel like they're more productive.
0: Jim's been the employer. I've been the employee. And one thing that you say about what employees can do is to make time to restock your mental energy. And I look at that and I think, I'm just showered by emails from work all the time. Um, And Many employers expect their workers to be always on. What do you have to say about that in terms of people who feel overwhelmed because there's just not a line anymore
2: between? Going home and being at work. I completely agree. And I, uh, I, from my perspective, this idea of work-life balance is completely antiquated. This, this notion that we can turn off our devices at 5 o'clock and be at home is just not realistic. However, we also need to factor in um, the, the, the data showing that unless we're taking time to really disconnect from work either on the weekends or in the evenings doesn't mean completely going off the grid for days at a time. But taking a few hours to be with loved ones or be really present in um, your life outside of work, you're going to be disengaged in a year. So there's actually research showing that the employees who are checking their emails after hours and on the weekends, they're the ones who are the least engaged a year later. And that's why you're seeing more and more companies um, actively trying to get their employees to disengage after hours. So there's examples in the book of companies like, um, well, the the most extreme example is Full Contact, this company in Denver, Colorado, that actually pays its employees $7,500 a year extra if they can manage to take a vacation without checking their email. Wow. wow. So as a manager, here's one easy thing that you can do is if you want to continue writing those emails at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, that's fine. Continue doing those. But Uh, introduce one of these email programs that allows you to write the email and have it arrive first thing in the the next day. That way people don't feel compelled to respond at all hours.
0: Ron Friedman, it's been great having you. Terrific discussion. I know there's a whole lot more stuff we could talk about. Ron Friedman's been our guest, author of The Best Place to Work. Thank you so
3: much for coming in, Ron. My pleasure.
0: Some very clear takeaways, Jim, from what Ron Friedman was saying about how to improve our experience at work, both for employees and for employers. First, that psychological needs are right at the heart of what employees need to have to be engaged in their work. Right. And this has been part of pretty much every
3: management book forever, but that doesn't make it any less true. It's kind of like your ski instructor is always going to tell you to bend your knees. It's always true. Helping people feel like they're competent at their jobs, that they can connect with coworkers, and that they have some autonomy to figure out how to solve the work problems creatively, those things are incredible incredibly crucial to helping people feel engaged at work.
0: Yeah, because I've just gone back to the work that I used to be at on a part-time basis. And one of the reasons I did was because I really liked the people I worked with and just connecting with people who you know, I wouldn't normally befriend mm-hmm. uh, but are different from me I, but, I have really strong links to them it 's kind of fun, and this is part of what Ron Friedman really focuses on and I, I like the fact he 's got so
3: many very practical, modest suggestions you know you don 't have to reinvent the world to do this stuff better, so he 's really encouraging us to find if we 're employers to find ways to help employees connect with each other. For example, having a fund for after work activities, having a work library about resources in your field.
0: Yeah. Another thing that employers can do is make it easy for employees to work out.
3: Right. Right. And and again, you know, you've seen this in a lot of forward-looking companies, but he really sees exercises as part of your work. In order to be an effective employee, you're going to need to stay healthy.
0: Yeah. Make healthy eating options a possibility. And then the other thing is don't expect employees. For goodness, sake to answer an email at midnight or on sunday
3: so that was a really concrete suggestion even if you are if you're the boss and you're sending out emails at 11 o'clock at night you know schedule them to be delivered at eight o'clock the next morning or at least let your employees know just because i'm explicitly just because i'm sending you emails in the middle of night i don't want answers it's totally fine for you to be off the clock from dinner to breakfast and and you'll catch up with this in the morning.
0: And I love this idea on vacations that you say to employees, you've really got to take your vacation time and we'll give you a bonus if you do. Yeah. It's sending a message that vacations are important for recharging our batteries. He also says, us workers, we should reframe our jobs and think about how we add value to the enterprise that we work for.
3: You know, that's such a simple thing. Too many people look at their work in terms of like, what's in it for me, or they come to their boss looking to move up in a kind of a self-centered way instead of saying how can I help this organization succeed better those are usually the people who wind up rising in in the long run having more job satisfaction because they're so valued
0: well Jim I don't know about you but I like this workplace (laughs) yeah this is my kind of workplace how do we fix it I'm Richard (laughs) Davis, and I'm Jim Mays thanks for joining us produced by Miranda Schaefer and our audio engineer Denise Barbarita here at Mona Lisa Studios
3: in beautiful uptown Manhattan
0: our website is howdowefixit.me go there for comments and to find out more about shows. And this is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Thanks for listening.
1: Here's a cool fact.